The scripture today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, and Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. This is the third time I am coming to you. Any charge must be sustained by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned previously and all the others, and I warn them now. While absent, <coughs> excuse me, I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not be lenient. Since you desire proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful in you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are weak in him, and in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are living in the faith. Test yourselves. Do not realize that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed. But we pray to God that we may not do anything wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. But we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. This is what we pray for, that you may become perfect. So I write these things while I'm away from you, so that when I come, I may not have to be severe in using authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order, listen to my appeal, agree with one another, live in peace, and God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. When the king will say to those at his right hand, Come that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when was it that you saw, we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, who are members of my family, you did it for me. Then he will say to those at his right hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. <coughs> Excuse me. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? 
Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Paul. Let me remind you a couple of other announcements I meant to make earlier. One is that the upper room devotional guides, the regular print and the large print, are available in the narthex on your way out for November and December. If you would like to pick one of those up, I would encourage you to please do so. And also, next Sunday is All Saints Day. It will be Holy Communion, so those of you watching at home, I hope you'll be prepared with your own brand of communion elements. But it's All Saints Day, and we will call the names of the saints, the members of this church who have died since All Saints Day last year, and we will recognize them. So it will be a special sacred day for us. I hope you'll be here in the sanctuary or here watching online, and we'll observe that day with us. And then thanks so much to all of our splendid musicians and singers this morning. Thank you, Rebecca Hafner-Camp, for filling in for David Kenraid, who is out of town, and Thank you, Stella and Jillian and uh, Youth Choir on the screen. And Bonnie, thank you for all you do every week to keep us on key or closer than we would have been without you. So thank you. We come now to the end of this series, about six weeks now or a little longer. We've been talking about major Methodist, now United Methodist, beliefs and doctrines. The topic for today is Christian perfection. We'll spend a little time with that. That's one that folks have some trouble with. One of the questions I ask us when we are ordained that the bishop asks us is, do we expect to go on to perfection, to be made perfect in this life? And that's always a hard one to answer. And some folks kind of just mumble through it or or. I have to stop and think, what does that really mean? And uh, then, of course, the follow-up question that's not always asked but is always there is, well, if you're not going on to perfection, where are you going? So, uh, But we'll talk about that. So we've talked about the authority of Scripture and justification by faith and God's love for all persons and sanctification, the pursuit of holiness and the assurance of our salvation just some of the major Methodist doctrines and beliefs. Now, since 1968, United Methodist doctrines and beliefs. And there are many more. I wanted to just cover some of the basic ones, and hopefully from time to time we will revisit that. I know that our confirmation class is studying some of these doctrines and beliefs as they go on Sunday after Sunday with young folks, and I think it's that's awesome. And I I think we all need to be reminded once in a while of who we are as God's particular and peculiar people. And I mean that in a positive way and in a good way. Correct beliefs lead to proper actions. I know sometimes folks do it the other way around. I believe God can move in that way as well. We start caring for people. We start doing gracious and loving things for people. And then we gradually come to believe 
that it's the love of God that's inspiring us to do these things and we embrace that love that has embraced us. But a lot of times our correct beliefs come first and then those beliefs are lived out in love and service to one another, to those closest to us and even to those that we sometimes have difficulty with. One of Methodism's most important contributions to the rest of the Christian faith is this doctrine of Christian perfection. After persons have been justified, loved by Christ, accepted that love, and have begun that process of sanctification, of growing in faith, that lifelong process of God's image being restored in us, then we talk about moving on toward perfection. You must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. That passage is one that we read and sometimes it it troubles us. And one of John Wesley's favorite phrases was, we love God because God first loved us. And God regularly affirmed that perfection was, and Wesley I mean, and hopefully the spirit speaking through him at this point, Uh, reminded us that perfection was arriving at that state of perfect love toward God and others. And prayer without ceasing is a mark of that. Rejoicing evermore and in everything giving thanks. Just some basic stuff to what it means to live out this faith in a world that's broken and sometimes looks at us sideways and says, what do you folks really believe? He understood perfection to be the quality of that expression of God's love and growing in that love and becoming more loving in all of our actions until we can embrace it fully. And even though this perfect love is achievable in this life, it does not mean that we're infallible. It doesn't mean that we don't make any mistakes. That's where the perfection things throw so many people. We get this idea, well, if I'm perfect, then I don't make any mistakes. I've never met anybody who doesn't make any mistakes. I'm reminded of that every time I I look in my mirror. It does not keep us from involuntary sin, but it helps us in our growth toward holiness and reaching a point where we do not willingly sin and hurt others and break our relationship with God. This much is certain, wrote Wesley, they that love God with all their heart and others as themselves are scripturally perfect. That, in a nutshell, is what it's all about. That's where we're going. We love others, and we we love God, and surely such there are. Otherwise, the promise of God would only be a way to mock us, to lift up our weaknesses. But it's possible to reach this state of perfection in love. So let's think about that. Let's dissect that for a little bit longer. For one thing, Christian perfection or full sanctification is, in the words of Wesley, the grand depositum which God has lodged with the people called Methodists. And for the sake of propagating this chiefly, he appears to have raised us up. It's a peculiar doctrine to United Methodist folk. It's one that not everyone embraces or even talks about. Bishop Nolan Harmon, in his book, Understanding the Methodist Church, said that Christian perfection, at any rate, the doctrine of Christian perfection, has been one specific doctrinal contribution which Methodism has made to the church universal. John Wesley called it the peculiar doctrine that has been entrusted to our care. 
In all else we have been, as we should be, energetic followers. And much of what we believe lines up with what folks from other Christian traditions and denominations and backgrounds believe as well. But this is a different thing. Nerved by the tremendous, be ye holy, for I am holy, and be ye perfect, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect, we are to hope for ourselves and others that we shall be made perfect in love in this life. And perhaps here again, as is our faith, so shall it be. For another thing, Christian perfection should be our primary goal as United Methodist Christians. We should be moving toward it all the time. Not like it's a heavy burden, something we'll never reach, or something if we don't quite get there in this life, then our heavenly striving is, is put aside. It's, it's not like that. But it's growing up, beginning with that new birth, whether it comes suddenly or gradually to us as we grow in our faith. Growing up in that love and in that perfection, we move toward each other, we move toward God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, and we get it confused sometimes, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter is one we know so well, and we sang part of that a while ago, but this is 2 Corinthians 13 that Paul read so well a while ago. And so we pray that you also will become perfect. That is why I write this while I am away from you, and it's so that when I arrive, I will not have to tell you or be harsh with you that the authority that the Lord has given me. And Paul could be harsh, couldn't he? His language could be kind of tough, and and many folk were, were put off by it. But underneath was the grace of God. He said, I'm given the authority to build you up, not to tear you down. And now, my brothers and sisters, goodbye. Strive for perfection. Those were Paul's words. It's all through the New Testament. We overlook it sometimes because we say, well, that's an exaggeration. We'll never get there. And for another thing, Christian perfection means being made perfect in love. And Wesley wrote about that. Charles Wesley wrote about that in so many of his hymns. Being perfected in love. And if you have access to a hymnal, and I know some of you have one at home, the others long for the day when we can bring them back out. And hopefully that day is not far away. But this process of sanctification, we sing about it as United Methodists. This moving toward perfection is so much a part of who we are. We're given power over outward sin. And love becomes the dominating motive of our life. But though love dominates in our dealing with others and is a guide for all of our actions, it's not the only motive of our lives. And sometimes we are still tortured by the urgings and the cravings and the dispositions of our old nature that cause us to say and do hurtful and harmful things even when we think we're acting in the name of God. And we need that love of God to move us beyond this, this willful sinning, this willful harming of other people. But when we reach the state of entire sanctification, when we attain the goal of perfection, these wrong tempers and temptations are taken away. We don't struggle with those anymore. And they seem to vanish. And the craving and the urge with which we are wronged, in which we wrong others, becomes a part of our past and not a part of who we are right now. 
But in body and mind, the perfect Christian is still finite, still human. We make mistakes in judgment. We make mistakes all the days of our lives, probably some already today. And these mistakes and judgments lead to mistakes in practice. And those mistakes in practice often have bad moral consequences. So perfect in the sense of infallibility does not exist on the face of the earth. And I want to be clear about that. I don't want us to dismiss this doctrine, this notion of perfection, because we say, well, nobody can, nobody's perfect. The reason is that we sometimes scare folks off when we talk about perfection. And we think of folks with a holier-than-thou attitude who've got it all figured out and who are putting down the rest of us who are not quite there yet. But as we move toward perfection, we move beyond those judgmental attitudes. It doesn't mean we're mistake-free. It means our heart is overwhelmed and dominated and completely controlled by the love of Christ. And that shapes all of our words and all of our actions. Are we moving in that direction? Is perfection our goal? From its beginnings, Methodism has exhibited a balance between an emphasis on holy habits and personal morality and an emphasis on social justice or confrontation of evil oppression in this world. There's a twin emphasis here. As United Methodist Christians, we don't have the luxury of saying, well, it's all about this. It's all about my personal morality and my personal relationship with Christ, or it's all about the way I treat other people in this world, especially those who've been put down and harmed. We don't get to choose. It's both of those. That's so strong in what Wesley taught us. I think it's so strong in, in Scripture we see this twin emphasis of perfection in the lives and teachings of Jesus and Paul, as well in the life and teachings of the early Methodist leaders, John and Charles Wesley and Francis Asbury and all those other folks, Philip Otterbein and Jacob Albright and Richard Allen and Benjamin Robertson, all of those folk in our past who taught us it is our relationship with God but it also is the way we live our lives in this world and the way we treat other folks, especially those who disagree with us and those who sometimes offend us. The goal of Christianity, love, the Methodist two centuries and more to take our courageous actions. And United Methodist people have always taken action against things in this world that bring us harm, violations of human nature, Violence and political and economic and social oppression and slavery and the abuse of alcohol and tobacco and drugs and gambling and all those things. We've been strong about those things. Not just so we feel self-righteous, but so that we help those who are struggling. We've been driven by the cry of the sick and the hungry and the homeless and the poor and the imprisoned and the lonely and the spiritually starved multitudes of this world. That's always been a hallmark of who we are. That's nothing new, but we sometimes forget it. With John Wesley, we affirm that true Christianity cannot exist without both the inward experience with God and the outward experience, the outward practice of justice and mercy and truth. 
Wesley's life and his preaching had become a continuous expression of social Christianity. He said in late 1739, solitary religion is not to be found in the gospel of Christ. Holy solitaires, he said, is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows of no holiness but social holiness. This commandment we have from Christ, that he who loves God loves his brother and sister also, we feel that in a building relationship, a burning desire to spend our lives for the needs and the hurts and the hopes of others. The Wesley of pre-Aldersgate days seriously considered giving up all social works and seeking salvation in solitude. But after his experience at Aldersgate, after his heart was strangely warm, that's when he began to really notice all of the things in this world that he needed to be addressing and talking about. This is just a short list. You may not have known he addressed all these things and calls us to consider them. The depletion of rural districts, unemployment, the causes for unemployment, the remedy for unemployment, the land question, small holdings, agricultural, fisheries, taxation, the national debt, East India stock, the legitimacy of speculation, the accumulation and distribution of wealth, luxury, dress, money, intemperances, smuggling, the production of useful and useless articles and kindred themes. He was interested in electricity and medicine, wrote a book on medicine, a, a, a physic he called it, and particularly in such points as they bore on the social life of the poor in this world. He had a heart for those who struggled and who did without. That's always been a part of who we are. His writings about this abound allusions to the social life of the people and dramatic expressions of his love and his care and his calling us to do that as well. Certainly something had happened to the Wesley who once preferred a solitary religion. And that's the living out and the moving in perfection, moving in love till we embrace those around us. Our position as United Methodist Christians is a relationship, a balance between personal holiness and social justice. Again, it's not an either-or kind of thing. And we need to look at both of those. Our heritage, our understanding of Holy Scriptures helps us to know that we can't separate those two things and that we have an obligation to care for folk in Christ-like love. I want to wrap things up with the story Tony Campolo and I've quoted him before, one of my favorite writers and preachers across the years. This is one of his stories. And this story connects back in with that passage Paul read earlier from Matthew's gospel, when you've done it unto the least of these. And I think it has to do with moving toward perfection in this world. It's a painful story when you stop and, and try to picture it as I tell it. He said, some years ago, I was doing missionary work in Haiti in the Dominican Republic one afternoon near the border, separating those two countries. He said, I stood in the edge of a field waiting for the small plane that was to come and take me back to the capital city. As I stood there, a woman came toward me. In her hand, she was holding her baby. The baby was dirty and filthy, obviously close to death. The woman held the child up to me and then began pleading for me to take her child please mister please please take 
my baby. Take my baby with you, she begged. Take my baby to your country. Feed my baby. Take care of my baby. Don't let my baby die. And he said, I didn't know what to do. I could not take her baby. I was relieved when I saw the plane come into sight. And as it rolled toward me, I ran out to meet it. I started to get away from that woman and her baby, but she came after me. Take my baby. Don't let my baby die. Before the pilot could turn the plane around for the takeoff, she was alongside us, banging on the side of the plane and screaming out, Don't let my baby die. We flew away, and I tried to put that woman and her baby out of my mind, but I couldn't. Halfway back to the capital, he said, it hit me. It dawned on me who that baby was. I realized who it was that I had left behind on that landing strip. The name of that child was Jesus. What child is this? Whenever you did this for one of the least important of these, you did it for me. To be made perfect in Christ-like love means that personal holiness is our way of life. To be made perfect in Christ-like love means that we need to treat the last and the lost and the least as if they were Jesus. Any doctrine that takes the form of a knife and attempts to sever these two emphases is to be avoided like the plague. Amen.